said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus says, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell into the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So last week we covered the second passion prediction. And so this week, you know, we have to hear the second part of their embarrassing response. The group of them are still rooted and grounded in the wrong kind of kingdom dynamics. You know, they, despite being able to cast out demons, usually, because, you know, we saw that last week, um, heal the sick and preach the gospel, you know, they, they have the best teacher in the world, but they're still ambitious in the extreme. They want power and position and honor. And they are even jockeying for position as to who will replace Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, after he dies. Yeah, they did that. I mean, the color drained out of my face the first time I realized it, but Yeshua tells them, and not for the last time, that God's kingdom is made up of people who are of no reputation. Uh, they're like the little children who, um, who were considered to be nothing more than the, you know, nothing more than the property of their parents and, and would probably die before they got interesting and were therefore irrelevant. Okay. But worse, they were told to be the servants of children, a job for slaves and horror of horrors, women. Oh, the humanity. You know, surely this will shut them up and they'll be too embarrassed to say anything else. Till next chapter. Okay. <laughs> anyway, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist. And welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture with an eye to developing the character of our Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including 
a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. And you can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast called Context for Kids where I teach them Bible context in a way that... Um, teaches them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week, as usual, comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, and they're not paying me to promote them. I'm just, you know, it's less confusing sometimes when you're following along with the same version. But, you know, you can follow along with whatever version of the Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. Um, let's review the lead-in again from last week before moving on. And this is from the expanded TDR version of the Bible, the Tyler Don Rosenquist version of the Bible, which is not authoritative and with good reason. All right. <laughs> And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, guys, if anyone really wants to be my replacement, he's going to have to be the one doing all the dirty work on behalf of the people you all have been taught to write off. And as he took a child and put him in the midst of them, the disciples looked on with horror. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever accepts and serves one such child in my name, you know, like a slave or a woman has to, but you were raised to believe was beneath you, and don't even get me going about what I expect for you to do on behalf of Gentiles. Anyway, whoever accepts such a child in my name accepts and serves me. And whoever accepts and serves me accepts and serves not only me, but Yahweh who sent me. And the disciples were horrified and tried to redeem the situation another way because this was just not reasonable. Okay, like I said, not authoritative, but that's my take on the end of last week. I have mentioned this before, but after each passion prediction, one of the three core disciples says something to make it abundantly clear that none of them understand the writing on the wall. And that their kingdom understanding is dead wrong. And that they are inherently wanting to serve the wrong kind of kingdom. And before you're too hard on them, we're all raised the same way. We love hierarchies. We love status. We're ambitious. It's the American dream. We love the safety and security and feelings of power that spring from violence. You know, the violence that Constantine injected into the church. So much so that we hate to read the Sermon on the Mount without pausing every few minutes to say, but he obviously didn't mean that because that isn't reasonable and could actually get us hurt. But the kingdom came as a child and was inaugurated by an act of extreme self-sacrifice ushered in through an injustice. An injustice that's never been avenged. Oh! <gasps> Oh my gosh. 
anyway, uh, the disciples were going to learn the hard way that he meant every word of it, and it was going to cost them their lives and all their ambitions if they were going to serve him. And for one of them, it was going to prove too much to ask. Anyway, so Peter responded to the first passion prediction with a rebuke that Yeshua doesn't know what he's talking about and that a Messiah isn't supposed to be killed. He's supposed to conquer their enemies. You know, I infer the sec the, the second part, okay, because... But it, it springs naturally from the first, so I suspect it's accurate, even though it's a guess. I mean, this time it's John, and the next time it will be James and John who initiate the inappropriate questions. But their questions are in the Bible not to embarrass them, but to serve as points of teaching and revelation. You know, without their questions, and if we don't take the responses absolutely seriously... We will also serve the wrong kingdom in the name of Yahweh's kingdom. They are in no way compatible. We have to accept it even though we were all born to hate and fear living under the kingdom of heaven. To call it countercultural is like the understatement of all time. All right, so starting out in chapter, John chapter 9, verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. You know, I always like to read this in my mind in the voice of Luke Skywalker, but I wanted to go to Tashi Station and pick up some power converters. You know, because they're young. You know, it's just... Uh, so not only are they jockeying for position to determine who will take Yeshua's place as lead teacher... After all, they can work the miracles too, and he's just a man like them, right? But now they're talking about disallowing anyone to cast out demons who isn't following us, plural. Meaning that they're actually believing that they themselves are worthy of being followed. I mean the us, seriously, us. And more than that. John is actually implying that the rest of the disciples who aren't included in the Twelve, because, you know, we're aware of a large group of at least 70 men and women who are followers at this point. And, you know, so the rest of the disciples who aren't included in the Twelve are following them collectively and not just following Yeshua. So this week's vocabulary word, boys and girls, is chutzpah. And it's a Yiddish word meaning, you know, the quality of extreme self-confidence or audacity. Um, you know, for good or bad. It comes from the Hebrew word chutzpah, obviously, meaning insolence, cheek, or audacity. That's the Wikipedia definition combined with a few others, just to give you the full flavor of what they're doing here. They have confused the honor, glory, and authority of Yeshua with their own. And notice that John's back to calling him teacher again. And this is the second downgrade from Messiah. Peter was responsible for the last one when he called him rabbi at the transfiguration. 
And this is the only time this John, as opposed to John the Baptist, is ever mentioned alone in the Synoptic Gospels, Gospels by name. Not exactly a banner moment. I mean, usually when you see John and it's not with anyone else, it's John the Baptist, except for here. But let's look at the situation here. Apart from Chutzpah, at some point, when they weren't with him, when John and some others in particular were not with Yeshua, they came across a fellow who was casting out demons through the authority of Yeshua, meaning that he was recognizing that through invoking the authority of Yeshua, demons would leave people and he was on a mission to do just that. What a guy. Evidently he was successful, which is a good thing for the kingdom and a bad thing for the strong man who had been bound, and this guy is looting him. Just as Yeshua said would happen. So they see him and they tell him to stop, but the text says they tried to stop him, so evidently it wasn't working. The guy wouldn't stop doing what was right. So what's the problem? Evidently he didn't have the correct group designation. He wasn't one of them, or following them, or bringing them any glory through association or whatever. Let's call it what it is. The guy was from the wrong denomination, and so he had to be stopped from doing the work that Yeshua came to do. Namely, rescuing his people from the oppression of the kingdom of Satan. You see, evidently, you're only allowed to do that if you are one of us. Quote-unquote. <clears throat> and how common is this mindset? How many times have we seen it or even said it or at least thought it ourselves? Sideline here. This is a shameful sideline for me, okay? When God had me start praying for the Chinese people years ago, and they need prayer desperately because communism is a terrible oppressor, and so is animism and shamanism and bond and some forms of Buddhism that are violent, and also, communist atheism is brutal. So, anyway, he had me start praying for them. And I did it via this book that taught me all about the over 500 people groups that make up what we outsiders call the Chinese people. But they aren't all Chinese. There are more languages and tribes than you can imagine. And I remember reading very early on and praying for groups in this book I used, uh, which I will link in the transcript. Uh, I can't remember what it's called right now. Uh, it was talking about Catholic missions to the Chinese. And this is really embarrassing. I was shamefully disappointed that they were converting the people of China instead of Protestants. And I will tell you that I got such a rebuke from the spirit on that one. Oh my gosh big wake-up call for me. Because it was the same thing as these disciples were doing with the guy that was casting out demons. These Catholic brothers and sisters, you know what? A lot of them gave their lives on behalf of the Chinese people to bring them out of idolatry and into the love of Christ. And I'm talking about real idolatry. I'm talking about black magic. I'm talking about shamanism. I'm talking about spirit appeasement, all right? They were doing good. They were loving these people. <clears throat> Just because I am not a Catholic doesn't mean that I get to tell them not to do good works among the Chinese. 
And I was rightly ashamed of myself. Now I thank God for their efforts in the world to help people, which brings me to Yeshua's response to his disciples. Verse 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be, af be able to soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. Too many words in that verse. <laughs> we cannot tell people not to do mighty works in his name. We don't have that right. When we do it, we're saying they aren't following us. They aren't following Yeshua in the way we believe is perfect. But the problem is that someone else can look at how we do things and rightly point out issues because we are all wrong in this or that way. And they can tell us not to do work, good works and be on equally solid scriptural ground. That is unsound ground. We are all on sinking sands when we forbid good works in his name. You know, best we combine forces as the various underground groups in China finally did to unite under the banner of Messiah and glorify him and preach the gospel and realize as Dallas, Dallas Willard likes to say that even in our differences we are still like meaning we have more important things in common than in disagreement believe it or not and I am shamed to have to admit this it is better for a person to be a Catholic and to, be, and to come to faith and be steeped in polytheism. I, I'm ashamed that I even have to say that, okay? It should be just self-evident. And to you Catholics that might be listening, it's better for a person to be a Protestant to be, than to be steeped in paganism, okay? The purpose of our lives is to serve people and bring them to the Messiah, not to make sure they're following us. Period. And speaking of, quote-unquote, following us, Yeshua says something that is a huge correction here. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. Like, hey guys, this has nothing to do with you. This is about me. Just like their view of the kingdom is too narrow in demanding that this be a guy be a part of their super, super secret cool kid club, their view of themselves is overly inflated. They are still just followers, even if they are the first in the inner circle. They're still followers, not the followed. They need to get their focus back where it belongs. And if they do that, if they see this guy was doing what was right to do, you know? Well, they'll see that this guy was doing, you know, what was right to do. He was doing the work of the kingdom. This guy, whoever he is, may not be a total insider, but he certainly isn't an outsider. He has recognized the unique of authority, the unique authority of Yeshua to do this. He believes he is fighting the right enemy, and so being divisive with him is contrary to the message of the kingdom. He is clearly opposed to the kingdom of Satan. He isn't the enemy, but by not seeking peace with, with, um, with him, you know, it's they who are at odds with the kingdom of heaven. Verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. So Yeshua is including this man under the umbrella of those doing the will, his will and serving the kingdom. But now he's being 
very deliberate by returning to the us language. The disciples used us in a divisive, exclusivist way, but Yeshua uses it in an inclusive way. This is absolutely a commandment to consider this man an insider and not an outsider. We actually see something very similar to this when Yahweh takes some of the spirit that rests upon Moses and gives it to the 70 elders of Israel, and Joshua gets jealous for Moses' sake. I think we talked about this last week or the week before. This is uh, Numbers 11, okay? And now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. <laughs> Maybe not like that. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. All right, more hands to the plow, guys. Anyone who truly has the best interest of the kingdom at heart will not dissuade anyone from doing mighty works in the name of Yeshua or Jesus or Jesus or Yesu or Isa or whatever name they use in their country because, as in the case with Moses, the harvest is great, but the workers, the people who actually do the work, are very few. Moses couldn't carry the weight of the job of ruling over Israel in the wilderness all by himself. And, you know, none of our denominations, religious cliques, can support the weight of the worldwide need for the gospel of the Savior. All hands on deck, people, or shut your mouths. We're either part of the solution or we're part of the problem. There is no room for jealousy in the kingdom. Just rejoicing when the work of salvation gets done and people are released from under the oppression of Satan and into eternal life. Verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. See, here's where we uncover their hypocrisy. They've been out and about ministering and receiving hospitality from these not following us people but they can't accept they can't they can't accept hospitality from outside the group and then cut them off from doing the larger work of the kingdom in Yeshua's way of thinking there is no difference between the people who fed and housed them while they were on the road and uh, this guy casting out demons. If they're going to accept the former hospitality, then they have no de right to decline the latter. And that goes for all of us. We can't use people when it's convenient to our ministry work and then jealously guard against them stepping in on our turf. Because it isn't our turf. It's Yeshua's turf. And he calls who he calls and doesn't see fit to ask us how we feel about it beforehand. Yeshua's turf means there is no room for turf wars because turf wars take the focus away from getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth as Yeshua promised it 
it, it would be, you know, and, and until it is, until it's out to the ends of the earth, he isn't going to be returning. And why should he? Too many people groups have never heard of him. That it doesn't offend us? Ugh. If, you know, if it doesn't offend us, then who are we to spend time deciding who gets to do his work? But here, you know, in the next verse, we're going to come up to here, because we're coming up to the half here. You know, the next verse is going to be one of the most scathing rebukes, I think, in all of Scripture, and it gets misinterpreted when removed from the context of what went before. Um. Ugh. Okay, I'm all wound up now. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we will... Oh, gosh, we will be back in a few minutes, and I'm going to get my blood pressure down before starting to record again. Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This week, this week we are talking about the tattletales and the millstone. Because <laughs> I couldn't think of anything. I mean, just, oh, these guys. Um, but we're in, in Mark chapter 9, and yeah, we're at the end of Mark chapter 9, and good thing, because I don't think I could take much more of the hijinks of the disciples in, in this. But, um, so, Right now, Yeshua was about to really rebuke them. Hard. Harder than, I mean, it's even, it's easy to even realize to, it's easy to even miss that this is a rebuke against the disciples. So, um, now remember, Yeshua has a child in his arms, but he hasn't been talking about this child for a bit here. He's talking about him, uh, we talked about it last week. All right, but, um, Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So who is the little one who believes in him? Is he talking about the child in his arms? No, he's referring to the exorcist that they've been hampering. Yeah. There is no reason to believe that the child Yeshua is holding believes in him, but the exorcist sure did. Enough to be running roughshod all over the enemy's domain and looting his kingdom of demonically oppressed victims. The disciples are still thinking in worldly terms of being an exclusively authorized club, and Yeshua has to divest them of this extreme error before he's crucified. By trying to get this guy to stop performing deliverance on God's people, they are causing him to sin, if he was listening to them, which he didn't. Because to be able to do such great good and to instead withhold it is sin. Yeshua is telling them that they cannot refuse the right of others to minister in his name and according to authority and, and to do the works that he does. Whoever this anonymous man is, he certainly has impressive faith. 
to stop his exercise of that faith is something that Yahweh will not tolerate, and it would be better for them, the disciples, to have a millstone, you know, one of the large ones that animals moved around, hung around their neck, and be thrown into the Sea of Galilee right outside this house in Capernaum. Now, the word here for sin is scandalizo, from which we get the word scandalous. What they are doing is unthinkable and scandalous. There is no room for that in the kingdom. The stakes are too high. And we play a dangerous game when we repeat this sort of chutzpah, back to our vocabulary word for the week. Audacity. I might also mention the ancient trial by water. Because they do make fun of it in a lot of movies, and I will not mention those movies by name. <laughs> the idea of someone throwing someone in deep water, fully clothed, and, um, you know, if they can swim to shore, it means they were innocent of all charges because the gods vindicated them. Well, fully clothed would be bad enough, but weighed down by a millstone? Even worse. And yet Yeshua is telling them that even that would give them a better chance of vindication than what they're doing to people who aren't, quote-unquote, one of us. Which is scary stuff, and it should scare us before we repeat those actions. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. And to the unquenchable fire. Now let's talk about hyperbole for a minute. There are times when Yeshua is absolutely literal and times when he is not. Turn the other cheek and pray for and bless your enemies? Absolutely serious and literal. Cutting off body parts? Absolutely serious and not literal. I do want to talk about hell, Gehenna, and the unquenchable fire. There are three valleys associated with Jerusalem. If you look at the three of them on a map, on a topographical map, they form the Hebrew letter Sheen, which looks like a W. Um, to one to the, the one to the north is the Kidron Valley, and the one down the middle is the Teropian Valley, or the Cheesemaker Valley. And the southern valley is the Valley of Hinnom, or Gay Hinnom. During Second Temple days, this was a garbage pit, and just everything imaginable was thrown into it from the city to be burned in order to keep Jerusalem holy. You know, it's kind of like, it's like an archaeologist's dream now. But the fires burned full-time, and during this time in extra-biblical writings, it was often used to refer to the fate of the wicked. That was the understanding that those who were wicked would end up here and it would serve as a cautionary warning to sinners. In the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Rosh Hashanah, 16b to 17a, we see this. <clears throat> it has been taught. Beit Shammai say, and, and I'm not responsible for this bad grammar, okay? I'm just reading it. <laughs> there will be three groups at the Day of Judgment. One of the thoroughly righteous, one of the thoroughly wicked, and one of intermediate. The thoroughly righteous will forthwith be inscribed definitively as entitled to everlasting life. The thoroughly wicked will 
forthwith be inscribed definitively as doomed to gay Hinnom, as it says, Valley of Hinnom. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to reproaches and everlasting abhorrence. Ah, the intermediate will go down to gay Hinnom, and squeal and rise again, as it says. And I will bring the third part through fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will answer them. Of them, too, Hannah said, The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Bade Hillel, however, say, He that abounds in grace inclines the scales towards grace. And of them David said, I love that the Lord should hear my voice and my supplication on, on their behalf. David composed the whole of the passage. I was brought low and he saved me. Wrongdoers of Israel who sin with their body and the wrongdoers of the Gentile who sin with their body go down to Gehenom and are punished there for 12 months. After 12 months, their body is consumed and their soul is burnt and the wind scatters them under the soles of the feet of the righteous, as it says, and ye shall tread down the wicked and they shall be as ashes under the soles of your feet. But as for the menim and the informers and the scoffers who rejected Torah and denied the resurrection of the dead, um, and those who abandoned the ways of the community and those who spread terror in the land of the living and who sinned and made the masses sin like Jeroboam the son of Nebat and his followers these will go down to Gehenom and be punished there for all generations as it says and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have rebelled against me etc Gehenom will be consumed but they will not be consumed as it says and their form shall wear away the netherworld Okay, this is from um, Dave, uh, InStoneBrewer.com, Rabbinic Traditions. David Instone Brewer is one of my favorite scholars. He's an incredibly brilliant mind. Um, by the way, when it says the Menim will be the ones that burn forever, that's you and me, boys and girls, Christians. So <laughs> this was, you know, uh, this was a Talmud. This was written 600 years after Yeshua, or it was compiled then, and uh, they weren't there was no love loss between Christians and Jews at that point. There was a lot of hatred on both sides. Um, but um, so this this section, you know, why the quick change of subject from, you know, um, don't stop this guy from ministering to cut your hand off. Well, what if it isn't a change of subject at all? What they've been taught, you know, what have they been talking about since last week's verses? Ambition! Yeshua has not changed subjects. Verse 45, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Now, the cutting off of the hand was a common practice against thieves in the ancient world, and the cutting off of a foot was the punishment for runaway slaves. In the next verse, we see a reference to the eye being cut out, which I believe was a reference to their jealousy. Um, the evil eye was associated with jealousy, envy. Yeshua is talking about some very serious and deep-seated 
jealousy issues here. They cannot think that they have the right to take from others the opportunity to serve God's kingdom. There's zero room for that. They cannot shirk their positions in life as slaves of the entire world by running off in the direction of prestige and looking to be top dog. They can't get that in this kingdom. And they cannot be jealous of others called by Yahweh to do the work of the kingdom in the authority of the Son. And they have committed all three of these sins because their hearts are still carnal regardless of how much insider teaching they've been blessed to receive, and despite the mighty works they have been given the privilege of performing. And we can go a bit easy on them because the cross is still future, as is the new creation, which will overhaul and transform all except one of them. Verse 47 and 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So, what Yeshua is teaching here is communicating the concept of the judgment, but it is a mistake to take this and make doctrine out of it when the whole point of what he is saying is that the ways of the kingdom cannot be served by what they are doing and wanting right now. That the ways of the world are not compatible with the kingdom. And more than that, they will never be compatible. Instead of literally cutting away body parts, Yeshua is calling them to lives of absolute denial of the ways the world gets ahead and does things. And a complete sacrifice of everything worldly that is causing them to view the incoming kingdom as an opportunity for worldly promotion worldly power, worldly gains. The kingdom came as a child and a lamb, not as a bloodthirsty conqueror, and they have to follow the lamb. They cannot depart from the pattern they have been showed and authorized to operate in. And no matter how many people, or no matter how people want to interpret Revelation, while, it, you know, you know, if they're ignoring the fact that Yeshua is referred to as the lamb like 28 times and the lion only once and goes into battle with the sword of his mouth, not of his hand, and with his clothing drenched in blood before the battle, which means only his blood is on his clothing. Look it up. I'm telling you the truth here. Yeshua is crashing their party of the kind of violent upheaval they hoped for in the example of the Hasmoneans, uh, the Maccabees, you know, which ended in disaster with the Roman occupation, you know, when the level of intra-Jewish violence became too much for even Rome to tolerate. And again, when the Jews tried it again under Bar Kokhba, God refused to give them the kind of victory they wanted, and the entire city was razed to the ground. Only the temple had been razed before, and remade as a fully realized Roman city. They can't afford to get this wrong. Yeshua is now trying, or now, now tying, excuse me, a complete denial of ambition and division to following him and obeying the ways of the kingdom. Let's look up the final few uh, verses in the book of Isaiah. That's Isaiah 66, starting in verse 20. 
and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries. That's a kind of camel. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. We must conform ourselves to the otherworldly methods and ethics of the kingdom. Otherwise, it's rebellion. And what Isaiah and Yeshua are communicating to us is that instead of being the greatest, we will end up on the trash heap, not only of history, but eternity. And, you know, ow, okay? For everyone will be salted with fire. That's verse 49. Now, what does this mean? That everyone will be salted with fire. Salting was what was performed on whichever parts of the sacrifice were being burned. Everything that was burned had to be salted. Um, and, and different sacrifices had different parts that were burned. Not all of them were completely burned. Um, you know, I mean, either we will be sacrifices or trashed. I mean, he's talking about trash here, okay? As, you know, we're following this context trail. It's one or the other. We aren't literally going to be burned up if we make the right choice. So it's a concept that, you know, of what what will be disposed of, okay? Our worldly ways are going one way or the other. Either as a sacrifice of our own choosing, leaving the rest of us that was conformed and dedicated to Yeshua and his kingdom intact, or all of us, because nothing was fit for the kingdom. That's the hell concept here. Will anything remain for the kingdom? So, if this exorcist was willing to be salted, leave him alone. He's walking in the right direction. Don't turn him around. Once the crucifixion happens, this guy has some decisions to make. and But he can't deny the power. But if the disciples stopped him and then Yeshua died, he'd be thankful he hadn't made the mistakes of continuing to do works in his name. Quote-unquote mistakes. You see how it goes? How easily we can become, um, <coughs> excuse me, severe stumbling blocks and block the way to the kingdom. You know, as, as the Pharisees and scribes, uh, were accused, you know, of doing in Matthew 23, 4, you know, be one of us before you do ministry. I mean, it's crazy what we do. It's crazy what we justify. It's crazy how wrapped up and arrogant we get in our current understanding of things and forget that everyone's on a journey. And saying, no, even though I just got here today, all you other people, you have to be where I am today, even though no one did that to you. God certainly didn't do that to you. 
Anyway, oh, I didn't do a very good job getting my blood pressure down during the break. <laughs> Verse 50. This will wrap up the chapter, wrap up chapter 9. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I call this the you worry about you rebuke. And yet that's wrong because this is a communal saying. Have salt in yourselves. Share salt. Benefit one another with your good fruit and your allegiance to me and your love for one another. Be at peace with one another. No more of this ambition and jockeying for position and arguing who is the greatest and trying to stop people from doing good works unless you approve of them and thinking that people should follow you instead of me or along with me. You guys aren't worthy of being followed. Get it through your thick skulls. <sighs> in his um in his book Natural History, Pliny the Elder actually mentions that the salt of the Dead Sea region had a particular flavor that could fade away because the salt was contaminated um with gypsum. Okay, it wasn't pure sodium chloride or potassium chloride. And so this gave it a very unique flavor. So the disciples couldn't just taste like the regular salt of the rest of the world, the sodium chloride, the potassium chloride, all right? They were called to a unique life and lifestyle. They would go through the fires because they would not look like anything the world had ever seen before. They wouldn't kill anyone in the name of their king. And in fact, they would all die for him. They would preach non-retaliation and forgiveness, the blessing of their persecutors, absolute trust in Yahweh to work um, things out in his own way. Gone were the days of conquest. The kingdom had renewed itself in the form of a child and a crucified king who forgave his torturers, his betrayers, and his murderers. And remember, it wasn't until Constantine that the church took on the idea of the convenience of violence and the concept of just war. Not until Constantine, when they had power, when they were no longer persecuted, then they lost their way. And we've still lost our way because we still follow Constantine and not Yeshua in this. And yeah, Augustine had a lot of really awesome things to say, but he was wrong on this. And he had to really twist scripture a lot to go the way of just war and violence. So that doesn't taste, you know, this this way of nonviolence doesn't taste, and, and no ambition and all this, doesn't taste anything like the world has to offer, okay? Nothing the world has to offer tastes like this. Is unique. It's still unique. A kingdom full of people called to take the lowest seat at the table, genuinely and not for show. A system where the least of these, those marginalized by Greco-Roman and first century Jewish society, you know, are the priority of everyone. Where we honor God by refusing to retaliate when shamed and opposed and persecuted. 
a kingdom whose weapons the enemy can't do anything about. How does one deal with people who will not kill? How does the enemy win a war when the only victory is to get people to break God's commandments when the people refuse to return sin for sin? No, you know, I'm not going to strike you back. No, I'm not going to kill you to keep you from killing me. No, I'm not going to fight the way the world fights. If you hurt me, I will bless you and pray for your salvation. I won't hand you a bludgeon to hurt me with, but I will forgive you for using one against me. But I'm not going to hit you back, I hope. I'm still a person. Um, you're going to have to sin all by yourself if I serve my master correctly. You can't touch me because I'm not afraid to die. If I truly believe in the world to come and I refuse to save my own life by taking yours. As he warned them against after the transfiguration. Huh. <laughs> I know you. I'm really popular right now, right? This is the word. This is the scripture. I'm not going to make excuses for it. It says what it says. Remember what the voice from heaven said at the transfiguration. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. He's the final word. Okay? Lots different now. After the crucifixion, a lot's different. Should be different. Anyway, so next week's... Um, from next week's lesson on through the end of the gospel, they will be in Judea. This actually wraps up the Galilean ministry until after the resurrection. Um, on the way to Jerusalem, he will teach one more shocking... Well, he'll teach actually a few more shocking things that will upset their collective apple carts. And he will increasingly be provoking the Judean leadership to kill him. The gloves have officially come off. He's headed to Jerusalem for the final time, and um, he's headed there to die for us. And uh, thank God he did. Be back next week.